Good evening, and welcome to the Enoch Pratt Free Library, Central Library. I'm Carla Hayden, and we're so pleased to have all of you here for this evening's very, very special edition of our Writers Live series. We are very honored here to have here tonight the author of a remarkable book, The Invisible Line, Three American Families and the Secret Journey from Black to White. And I must tell you that I have already purchased five copies and will be sending them out um, post with um, in the morning uh, because this is definitely a book that um, resonates in so many ways. The reviews of this book, if you haven't seen them, are amazing. The New York Times calls it illuminating, and the Boston Globe called it spellbinding. But I must tell you, my personal favorite reviews are from the award-winning authors who have recently been here at the library, including Pulitzer Prize winner Annette Gordon-Reed, MacArthur Genius Grant Award winner, and Dr. Ira Berlin, who was just here last month. You may know that Ira Berlin is um, a protege of the late Dr. John Hope Franklin and one of the most noted historians um, that this country has produced. And he said, Daniel Sharfstein's brilliant The Invisible Line unmasks the fiction of race and in exquisite detail exactly how race was and is made in the United States. And that said, you can see why it's such an honor for us at the Enoch Pratt Free Library to have him here. Now, our speaker tonight is... Just a wonderful, wonderful um, example of what the depth of research and meticulous um, mining of resources can produce. He's an associate professor of law at Vanderbilt University Law School, focusing on the legal history of race in the United States. He's a graduate of Harvard College and Yale Law School. He's also written for the Yale Law Review, the New York Times, The Economist, The Washington Post, and many other publications. So without further ado, please welcome to the Pratt Library, author Daniel Sharfstein. Thank you so much. Uh, it, it is so great to be here in Baltimore. I come home to Baltimore, my my whole family lives uh, uh, lives here, and I live in Nashville, which I guess thanks to Southwest Airlines uh, is uh, just one suburb west of Odenton. Uh, and uh, I, I come back here, uh, and I've been back here for many happy family celebrations, and this feels like one more. Uh, it's also just so great to be here at the Enoch Pratt Free Library. Uh, the library is just uh, such a treasure, and uh, I will be uh, forever grateful to the library uh, because at, at the very end of the production process for the book, uh, there was a question uh, about one footnote, and actually one source in that footnote, and it was uh, uh, a source from the Baltimore Sun, uh, an article from the Sun in 1945, and I looked through my files, and these were years and years and years of, of files, just big files. And for the life of me, I couldn't find this article. 
And then I saw that the, the sun was, uh, the archive was searchable, and I thought I could just do it on the computer. Couldn't find it. And uh, uh, in desperation, I uh, uh, called the Enoch Pratt Free Library, uh, and a reference librarian found it for me. So thank you for that. Uh, so it's just wonderful to be here, and uh, I, I really appreciate the, the kind introduction from uh, Dr. Carla Hayden. Uh, and uh, I, I also thank uh, Judy Cooper and, and everyone else at the library who uh, really uh, made this possible. So I'm going to talk a little bit about the book, uh, and at a couple places I'll, I'll read uh, very brief excerpts from the book. I want to keep it brief uh, in, in part because in the book I write about uh, a man who uh, goes to New Haven to give a talk, uh, and he stands up at the podium, and he didn't prepare any remarks. He just opened up this book he had written uh, and read from it for two hours. And uh, he wrote home that he, he thought uh, that the crowd really loved him, uh, but actually he, he had bored them into submission. Uh, so I'm going to keep the excerpts uh, uh, mercifully brief. The Invisible Line is a history of three families uh, across many generations and a really broad sweep of American history. At a glance, the families couldn't be more different one owned sugar plantations in the bayous southwest of New Orleans. Second family lived their lives as poor subsistence farmers in an isolated community uh, in Appalachian Mountain Hollow uh, in eastern Kentucky. And the third family, they were educated professionals in Washington, D.C. But these three families, the Gibsons, the Spencers, and the Walls, had one thing in common. Each started out as African-American, and each crossed the color line. They assimilated into white communities. They identified themselves as white, and their neighbors and the government thought of them as white, too. They became white. The Gibsons became white in the South Carolina backcountry before the Revolution, Around 1800, they moved to Mississippi and Kentucky and eventually Louisiana, and they ascended to the heights of the planter elite. Their descendants were Confederate officers, and after the war, they worked tirelessly to end Reconstruction and restore white rule to the South. The second family, the Spencers, they became white in eastern Kentucky before the Civil War. They started out poor, and they stayed poor. They farmed and logged their mountain hollow until they went into the coal mines. And for the better part of a century, they hovered on the line between white and black. The Walls story, the third family, the Wall family, began, uh, in a way, their, their story is the most familiar at the beginning. Uh, they, uh, it began when a uh, wealthy plantation owner in North Carolina uh, had children uh, by three uh, of his slave women. And then the story becomes a little less familiar. In the 1830s, he freed his children uh, to be raised by radical Quaker abolitionists in southern Ohio. Uh, and at the same time, he kept their mothers in bondage. Uh, these children became ardent abolitionists, educated professionals, 
and part of the rising black political class in Washington, D.C. after the Civil War. Uh, Their children came of age during Reconstruction. They were actually educated in integrated schools, the Howard University lab schools in the district. And they were raised to expect uh, a place at the table, uh, the same kinds of rights, same kinds of opportunities that everyone else could expect. But right when they reached adulthood, uh, Reconstruction gave way to Jim Crow, and it was like a door had slammed shut. And the children uh, uh, essentially traded a tradition of activism and African-American achievement uh, for an insistence on being white. Together, these three families, the Gibsons, the Spencers, and the Walls, tell a big American story. They settled the colonial frontiers. They lived through the revolution. They fought in the Civil War. They migrated west on great roads that were crowded with pioneers. And through booms and busts, and there were a lot of them all through American history, they earned and they lost and they earned back their family fortunes. They witnessed the rise of a plantation economy. They saw the coming of the railroads and industry. And they witnessed the the country's transformation into a modern uh, urban society. And they experienced the wrenching transition from slavery to freedom and then to Jim Crow. Their story is the story of America, and more particularly, it's the story of race in America. Their migration from black to white reveals one of the great hidden narratives of the American experience. From the colonial era well into the 20th century, People descended from African slaves were continually assimilating into white communities. This was a mass migration that was covered up even as it was happening. There have always been traces of this migration scattered through the historical record in scholarly accounts, in memoirs, in old newspaper stories. And there were legal cases dating back to slavery and segregation, where for one reason or another, judges and juries had to determine whether someone was white or black. But most scholars have assumed that this was a history that could not be recovered beyond a few isolated anecdotes. And as a result, histories of African Americans have gone in two directions. Uh, They have noted how Uh, Our history has oscillated between moments of relative tolerance and freedom for African Americans and moments when those possibilities were brutally foreclosed. But at the same time, the general assumption has been that the color line has held firm and that interracial ancestry is synonymous with blackness. Now, the more time that I spent uh, over the past years researching instances of migration from black to white, the more that three things became clear to me. First, that it's possible to recover quite a number of these events. Nowadays, there's so much genealogical material that's available and searchable on the internet, and there's a whole industry of DNA ancestry testing. You you swab the side of your cheek, you mail it in, and two weeks later, 
uh, you get a piece of paper back with, with a few percentages that, that lay out what your uh, ethnic composition is. And as a result, it's vastly easier to research these issues, and more people are learning about their family histories every day, and they're talking about it in public forums. So we know more about this phenomenon than, than we've ever known. Second, I learned that it's a mistake to treat instances of crossing the color line as isolated exceptional events. When I first started working on this project, uh, I thought maybe it would be predominantly a New Orleans story. Uh, but you do a little more reading, and suddenly it's also a Charleston story. And then it's a Mobile story. And then it starts moving inland. And by the time I got to the mountains of Kentucky, uh, I realized that these migrations occurred all over the South uh, across time. And third, the idea that the color line held firm just isn't true. During slavery and segregation, it was always permeable to some degree. So I realized that it was possible to recover a lot of these stories, and I also found that it was possible to recover these stories in considerable detail. So I found real estate listings that describe the siding of the houses of people I was writing about. Uh, I found family letters that talked about the size of their shirt collars. And in New Haven, Connecticut in 1850, they had really huge shirt collars. <laughs> so instead of compiling facts and figures about how many people crossed the color line, where and when, uh, it seemed possible to move beyond the bare data uh, and actually focus on who these families were, why they did what they did, and what the effects were on them, uh, on their descendants, and on their communities. And that seemed important to pursue uh, because, after all, race is not just a set of rules or a set of sociological trends. I mean, it's something that people think about in the abstract, uh, but it's also something that people live every day. It's a set of stories that people tell and retell and shape to their experiences. So I decided I wanted to add another story for people to talk about. As a result, I decided to write this history through the eyes of these three families and really uh, reconstruct uh, their, uh, uh, the times in which they lived uh, and uh, the places uh, wh where, they, uh, uh, where they lived. And I'll, I'll just give one example of, of uh, the, uh, what I mean by uh, thinking about uh, what their world looked like through their eyes. So uh, I'm, uh, I'll, I'll read a brief section about the second family, the Spencer family that uh, lived in eastern Kentucky. The patriarch of the family was a man named Jordan Spencer, uh, who was visibly dark-skinned. Uh, he dyed his hair red, uh, but the hair dye technology of the 1840s and 1850s isn't what it is today. Uh, so every time he sweat, his sweat would run red. And he was a manual laborer uh, who spent every day sweating. But uh, his community decided that there was such a thing as a dark white man. 
So this is uh, uh, describing a community that he and his family moved to uh, in uh, around 1850. The rock drawings that gave Paint Creek its name were still visible when Jordan Spencer, Melinda Centers, and their children built their new home. When they moved 100 miles through the mountains from Clay County to Johnson in the late 1840s, they found cliffs adorned with stark lines, some red and some black. The colors never mixed. Buffalo, deer, turkeys, panthers, rattlesnakes. With each winter, each hard rain, and each gouge of a vandal's knife, the images faded into the sandstone. The signs that another people had once lived in the hills of Johnson County, Kentucky, were fleeting. In the course of any hard day, few had a spare second to think about their past. But just as the land itself influenced how people lived their lives, what they grew, hunted, built, talked about, prayed for, and dreamed of. The earlier inhabitants had quietly shaped the new settlers' worlds. Likely as not, when Jordan Spencer left his cabin for the three-mile journey to Paintsville, the Johnson County seat, he rode on Indian trails. Along the way, by Paint Creek, ancient burial mounds produced ceramic shards and arrowheads for burrowing animals and the occasional souvenir hunter. Old men and women in the area had grown up hearing firsthand tales of encounters with Native Americans. Around the time of the Revolution, an Indian raiding party had held a pioneer woman named Jenny Wiley captive just a short walk from Jordan Spencer's cabin. After nearly a year, she escaped south through the hills. In 1850, people were still telling Jenny Wiley's story. It was a tale of constant looming threat in the wilderness outside. The world beyond one's mountain hollow was full of things that could kill you or, just as bad, change you. Wiley had, become, uh, had almost become an Indian, and it had taken every bit of her strength to return to her husband and remain white. Her escape route was now called Jenny's Creek. The only thing Spencer painted was his hair. It was long and red, straight but lay a little in waves, a neighbor reported always combed down slick. No one was fooled by the color for long. When Spencer was hot, his sweat ran red down his face. It was something that people tended to remember because Spencer spent most of his days sweating. Logging, farm labor, construction in the hills or in town. Spencer worked grueling jobs. He was strong, proud, even ornery, earning him a reputation by one neighbor's reckoning as a very active, keen man. People noticed that he was particular about his appearance. He rode a fine horse. When it galloped, a great-grandson was told, its legs just about went over its head. Spencer was not trying to hide. What set him apart was plain to see. Decade after decade, local census takers eyeballed the man or trusted the local lore and listed him as mulatto. At most, dyeing his hair seemed to turn his ancestry from something public, his race, into something private, his grooming habits. Neighbors might whisper or scratch their heads, but they did little else. In time, his distinctive appearance seemed to fade into the surrounding fields and forests and mountainsides. Like the rock paintings and burial mounds, it became something that people knew was there, but it stopped seeing. 
Now, I chose these three families with an eye toward the sheer diversity of the experience of crossing the color line and becoming white. The Gibsons, the Spencers, and the Walls crossed the color line at different moments in American history uh, from different parts of the South, urban and rural. Uh, I decided not to include a Louisiana family, uh, although uh, uh, not entirely. The Gibsons wound up in Louisiana, but they'd become white in South Carolina, and they moved to Louisiana as Anglo-Louisianans. Uh, I also wanted to show the diversity of social status, uh, from wealthy planters to poor subsistence farmers uh, to middle-class professionals. And I wanted to suggest that the politics, uh, laws, and other social trends that insisted on racial purity and white supremacy may actually have encouraged people to become white. And in addition, I wanted to show that becoming white did not necessarily conform to uh, what we think of as a conventional narrative of passing for white, uh, a, uh, where people uh, essentially totally change their identity, move away, abandon their family, constantly fear betrayal. Often, communities knew that certain people were racially ambiguous, uh, and they still accepted them as white, even in times of great racial polarization and violence. These were not islands of racial tolerance. Uh, these communities and their newest members could be just as committed to white supremacy as anywhere and anyone else. So communities could live with racial ambiguity, function with open secrets, uh, accept people who were known to be somehow different. They could even articulate ideas that come close to uh, today's notion that race is a social construction. And all the while, they could maintain a rock-solid commitment to Jim Crow. As I wrote them, these family stories became uh, a way of understanding the larger uh, evolution of racial ideologies in the United States. Most of the book deals uh, not just with the transition from one racial status to another, but with people who were living as black and people who were living as white. Uh, by reconstructing their lives and their communities, uh, the striving of free families of color in colonial South Carolina, the flowering of interracial abolitionism in Oberlin, Ohio, uh, the withering of radical reconstruction in Washington. I was trying to reconstruct a participant's view of what it meant to be black and what it meant to be white at different points in time, and how those meanings changed over the course of American history. A family's transition from black to white could be years in the making, but ultimately it was abrupt. Uh, it wasn't a move by people who had long since ceased to think of themselves as black. Many were part of the black community right up to the point where they weren't. And given their appearance, many families who were hovering on the color line had to insist on their blackness repeatedly in the course of a day. Uh, for years before they became white, they had to spend every day articulating what it meant to be black to shopkeepers, to police officers, and riders on streetcars, 
uh, anyone who reflexively categorized them as white in a segregated world. And when they decided to become white, it was not an escape from race. They had to think not only uh, about what it would take to establish and secure for themselves a place in a segregated white community, but they also had to figure out how to act around black people, uh, how to talk about them, and most tragically, how to hate them. Beyond this window onto the history of race, these family stories revealed how the law established and supported racial divisions in the United States. The law has always played a central role in how we understand race, but the messy realities of everyday life continually trumped and reshaped even the most clear-cut rules. When laws distinguished black from white, they did not simply fix the status of African Americans. Instead, as the stories of the Gibsons, the Spencers, and the Walls show, harsh legal regimes, so high taxes, free people of color had to pay higher taxes, uh, laws that made it difficult to own land or pass on wealth to the next generation, uh, laws that inhibited the ability of African Americans to own guns. These laws kept African Americans as second-class citizens, but they also gave people incentives to cross the color line and become white. So laws that purported to keep whites racially pure actually turned blacks into whites. Moreover, the courts made it very difficult to reclassify people who had been living as white. Judges interpreted statutes in ways that minimized their intrusion into the daily routines of communities, even when there was ample evidence that the communities were allowing people of color to become white. If the courts took a hard line, uh, they feared, and judges 100 years ago were saying this outright, uh, they feared that countless whites would be vulnerable to reclassification and the social fabric of the white South would unravel. The tragic irony of this is that by making white communities secure in their status, by minimizing the worry that they could be reclassified, the South was able to commit all the more to segregation, white supremacy, and the idea of white racial purity. Nevertheless, when the courts issued technical rulings that people were white, the fact remained that these trials provided very public occasions uh, for uh, airing what had previously been unspoken. Neighbors had to testify that they knew or suspected that certain families were black, uh, local juries had to weigh the evidence and render verdicts. So I asked myself the question, did the legal process itself perform a policing function? Did it push interracial families into blackness and prevent communities from holding on to its secrets? And what I've found when I've talked with living descendants of the litigants in these cases is that it's easy to overstate the effect of legal process. Many people were perfectly capable of moving out of their communities and establishing themselves as white elsewhere. Often the color line was essentially drawn between people who looked white on one side and other people who looked white on the other side. Uh, but in at least some instances, as soon as the cases were decided, 
racial knowledge in a community once again became a matter of winks and nods. The grandson of one litigant said he had no idea about the case his grandmother had been involved in or the evidence that was churned up. Uh, This was the grandson of a woman whose uh, husband had sued her for an annulment on the ground that he had unwittingly married a black woman. He said it was completely strange for him not to have known that this had happened uh, because his family stayed in the same community after the case and his grandmother uh, had lived with his family as he was growing up. He knew her well. He said, she used to tell me bedtime stories uh, before I went to sleep. And I asked him, what were those stories? And he said, she told me tales of the horrors of Sherman's March. Uh, Essentially, uh, he was told stories, uh, basically what white boys all over the South were being scared to sleep with uh, in the 1930s. Only his wife Uh, had an inkling of the family history because when they first started dating, uh, a few people whispered, uh, you can't marry that boy because you'll have black babies. Now, nothing more was ever said or done about it. They stayed together. No one objected when they married, when they had children. Uh, And actually, at the time the rumors started circulating, they were both attending a segregated white junior high school. So the idea that race is blood-borne, that it's grounded in science, still has incredible power over how we think of ourselves, how we order our worlds. Even in uh, what we're we're told is a post-racial era, uh, it's very easy for whites to tune out issues involving African Americans or regard blacks as different from or even fundamentally opposed in some way uh, to themselves. Uh, And as we've seen in recent stories about uh, uh, the amazing persistence of housing segregation in this country, uh, and in three years of running commentary over uh, whether President Obama is too black or not black enough, uh, race remains a potent dividing line uh, and political tool. With this book, uh, I I wanted to uh, uh, help us realize Uh, as we understand our very literal kinship, uh, just how absolutely central the African-American experience is to the American experience generally, and how our conventional understandings of racial difference and the legacy of racism that we still live with are shaped in no small part by the secret history that, that the Invisible Line explores. Once we understand that African Americans were continually crossing the color line and establishing themselves as white throughout American history across the country, we have to rethink what the categories of black and white mean. Biology, black blood, cannot be what makes a person black. After all, plenty of white people, millions even, have black blood too. They're not passing for white, they're just white. As I've researched centuries of shifting justifications uh, for race, I've learned instead that the category, uh, categories of black and white uh, have always functioned primarily as a marker of discrimination. 
race is little more than a bare proxy for hierarchy. Uh, the African-American scholar W.E.B. Du Bois said this best, I think. Uh, he said, people ask me, what is a black man? And I say the answer is easy. Uh, the black man is the person who has to ride the Jim Crow car through Georgia. Understanding this history, embracing this story as our American story, has the power to change how we think about ourselves. Uh, this is one of the real lessons that I took away from my conversations with descendants. And I want to close by reading another brief excerpt uh, about one of these conversations. Isabel Wall Whittemer was 65 when her daughter called nearly 10 years ago with exciting news about a genealogy project and a man named O.S.B. Wall. O.S.B. Wall was a, a pioneering African-American uh, abolitionist and then a Reconstruction official in Oberlin, Ohio, and then in Washington, D.C. My kids all thought it was cool. They were ecstatic, Whittemore recalled but she found herself inexplicably dumbstruck. The only history I knew supposedly came from England and Ireland and Scotland, she said. She didn't tell her husband because, in her words, I thought he would lose love for me. But almost immediately, she asked herself, what's it to be ashamed about, Isabel? It's a question that Isabel continues to ponder, knowing full well that she had no reason to feel ashamed. She wondered instead why such feelings came so reflexively. Now in her mid-70s, slowed by illness and the pain of her husband's death, she has contemplated her life and family and everything her mother ever said about her childhood. Most families have one skeleton in the closet. My family has more skeletons than they have living bodies, Isabel said. It's amazing. I don't know whether enigma is the correct word, but there's mystery to it. There's mystery, there's lies, there's violence. It's a big, 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 big thing to chew over and swallow and try to understand. Isabel grew up on Cape Cod, speaks with a gentle Massachusetts accent. Until 2009, she lived in central New Hampshire in a white clabbered house with a front room converted into a shop where her daughter sold tea to summer's tourists who strayed from Lake Winnipesaukee. Sitting at her kitchen table in August 2008 and gazing out on the yard, she expressed pride in the accomplishments of OSB and Amanda Wall, fascination with their world, and anguish about its rupture. For the first time in her life, Isabel felt pity for her mother, who, as a little girl, was kicked out of the first grade in Washington, D.C. in 1909 for being black. Isabel Whittemore has also thought about the lingering effects of her grandfather's decision to pass for white. Beyond the downward social mobility, his white descendants have lived with less money, education, and influence than their black ancestors did. Isabel focuses most on the loss of a large, close-knit family. In 19th century Washington, the Walls and the Langstons lived next door to each other, siblings and cousins growing up together in a community that they had built. By comparison, Isabel's life has been marked by an abiding solitude. When you're an only child, 
you feel very much alone. When I was small, I played by myself. You get hurt a lot as you get older because you want to have friends, she said. I've always wanted family. I always envied large families. And that's why I want to know more and more and more. I want to know all there is to know. I want to know I have a family back there, wherever. Wherever can feel very far away. And to Whittemore, the past at times has seemed impossibly remote. If anything, though, her story reveals its proximity. Isabel Wall Whittemore's name is not her only link to her family's history. She has OSB Wall's strong chin, as well as the same striking blue eyes, flair for the dramatic, and wry sense of humor as her forebears. She grew up with people who directly experienced the ordeal of passing for white. Her own mother could have explained what it was like to be expelled from school for being black or to play with a doll on the witness stand while the District of Columbia School Board scrutinized her appearance. As a young girl visiting Long Island in 1946, Isabel met her great-aunt, OSB Wall's daughter, a woman who had grown up in the heart of black Washington during and after Reconstruction, lived in a home where Frederick Douglass and Susan B. Anthony came calling, and received words of wisdom and encouragement from her uncle John Mercer Langston. Ultimately, what makes Whittemore's family history so fascinating to her is not how alien it is to her experience, but rather how tantalizingly close it is. Thank you. Uh, Americans uh, have always uh, moved around a lot, and they've always remade themselves. Uh, and uh, this is uh, originally a, an earlier title for this book was uh, The Invisible Migration. And in a lot of ways, it's an immigration and assimilation story. Uh, and we've assumed that uh, uh, African Americans were uh, somehow outside of this uh, American narrative, uh, but uh, this begins to chip away at that a little bit. Uh, and uh, I certainly, uh, uh, as uh, you know, growing up, uh, I, I mean, assimilation for uh, uh, for Jews in the United States is is uh, a big issue. And you know, I grew up hearing stories from my grandparents about you know people who were Jewish and and then they got over it. Uh, so, uh, what? So, I, I do think of this story as uh, uh, part of a larger American story uh, of uh, uh, pioneering uh, on physical frontiers, but also on all different kinds of frontiers of, of identity. Uh, so, when I first started uh, researching these families, I. Uh, uh, trace families back to the colonial era, and then I traced them forward to the present. And then I started contacting descendants. And I was very curious uh, to know uh, if I would be breaking the news to people. Um, and w what was really interesting to me was uh, very, very few people of the, uh, who I contacted really didn't know anything about this. Uh, and they all told more or less the same kind of story, which is in the last five or 10 years, uh, because of the huge amount of searchable databases for 
genealogists on the internet, uh, they all learn something about this. I mean, all it takes is one family history buff, uh, and every family seems to have one, and you know who you are. It, and, uh, and they all had these stories of um, uh, one of their, either they or, or a cousin, going into the public library, like the Enoch Pratt Free Library, seeing that the 1850 census was ab- available for a search, uh, deciding, what the hey, type in great-great-granddad's name, uh, and then having to call the librarian over and say, excuse me, uh, while they look at the handwritten enumeration sheet, um, uh, the letters M-U-L are, are written by my great-great-grandfather's name. And mulatto was a designation in the census from 1850 to, to 1920. Uh, so lots of people had this, uh, these revelations, uh, had already experienced these revelations. Now, the range of responses to it uh, really varied. I mean, it was a huge range. And to some degree, it tracked uh, generationally. So uh, a woman in her 50s would learn something about the family history, uh, tell her mother in, the 70s, er, in her 70s and 80s. Uh, the mother would say, that's very nice, dear. Uh, and then essentially call everyone else in the family and say, uh, you know, don't believe a word that my daughter's telling you. Uh, uh, you, you know, she took too many drugs in the 60s. Uh, and, uh, and for... Uh, although, as Isabel Whittemore's story shows, that doesn't really uh, hold. Uh, uh, so the, the responses range from flat denial, uh, you know, were uh, either this never happened or were Portuguese uh, or any number of, of explanations. Uh, it also ranged to uh, really deep confusion and anger about this. Uh, I think some people uh, said that they were more racist now, and I quote one person in the book, than they had ever been before. And in a way you think it's kind of a denial mechanism. They, they, uh, to convince themselves that they were white, uh, they, uh, I don't know, throughout history, Essentially, there's, no, there's been no better way to secure your white status than to hate black people. Uh, and they were uh, engaging in that kind of time-honored tradition. Uh, so there are people who, to convince themselves they were white, uh, professed to hate black people. Although the person I quote here, uh, he said that he was a racist uh, and really expressed hostility to this discovery. Uh, and at the same time, he couldn't stop researching it. And he needed to know everything he could possibly know, and he was posting it online. And this became a really important story for him. So I think actually over time, uh, his views about it evolved. Uh, and, uh, and then there was another group of people who uh, these kinds of stories really uh, uh, put a lot of different things into perspective for them. So uh, uh, people would say, uh, I've always been troubled by uh, uh, the racism in my family. And understanding this part of our history, 
uh, helps me understand why people uh, uh, related to African Americans in the way they did. And this was something that always bothered me. Uh, this begins a process of making sense of that and moving beyond that. Uh, other people uh, said that uh, they uh, now give talks to African-American churches, for example, uh, talking about uh, the illusory nature of the color line and their family experience. Uh, so it, it, it's really ranged uh, from denial to, to really embracing this as their story. Uh, I mean, for, for me, what I noticed was uh, the moments when the laws were the most insistent about uh, racial purity and maintaining an ironclad color line, the moments when the, the line was the brightest, uh, these were moments when people had the most incentive uh, to cross the line. So uh, you, you see uh, uh, clusters of stories about this uh, in uh, the 1850s, uh, right as uh, the U.S. is heading towards civil war and as the South is contemplating a world without slavery, uh, really delineating the difference between black and white became much more important. Uh, and uh, you also see a, a real cluster of these stories uh, uh, right as uh, the uh, U.S. is aggressively segregating the 1890s into the early 20th century. Uh, beyond that, though, there, there were... Uh, certainly a lot of instances of this uh, in uh, uh, early colonial Virginia, uh, so, and a, a time when uh, racial boundaries were just a, a lot more fluid. Uh, but, but really, you can find examples of this uh, all through time. Uh, I mean, today, uh, you know, it's generally uh, uh, thought that... Uh, the, the civil rights movement really uh, uh, ended uh, the, the mass migration uh, 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 element of, of this story. Although, you know, nowadays, I mean, th there's uh, uh, just a tremendous amount of uh, uh, self-definition and, and multiracial identity. And, uh, you know, there's, there's still a tremendous amount of play of how, about how people identify themselves. In some ways, that makes the identity less important, uh, but in other ways, it, it, it makes people, uh, 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 or gives people options. The question of whether he was dark-skinned for a white person or uh, uh, dark-skinned uh, uh, as something different from a white person, uh, pretty clear uh, that uh, he was different. So uh, I traced him to uh, Clay County, Kentucky, uh, which was uh, an area uh, in the mountains that had the largest concentration of free people of color in the mountains. Uh, there are very few African Americans generally uh, in eastern Kentucky, uh, but, but most of the slaves and most of the free people uh, were in Clay County, in part because in the early 19th century there was a a bustling salt mining industry. Uh, and uh, he uh, lived with a, uh, a freed slave uh, 
and he and this freed slave, they uh, both, uh, they married sisters uh, who were white from South Carolina. Uh, And uh, right at the moment that uh, this freed slave who Jordan Spencer lived with was being prosecuted for interracial fornication, that's when Jordan Spencer uh, and uh, his, his wife and children moved deeper into the hills. Uh, I have testimony from a trial transcript of lots and lots of people who lived, uh, had lived with Jordan Spencer for 50, 60 years. And uh, they were very protective of him uh, in this case. It, it was uh, uh, in the 19-teens, uh, it was like an Appalachian family feud, except instead of fighting with bullets, uh, the other family fought with rumors that the Spencers were black. And the testimony uh, uh, about all centered on old Jordan Spencer. Uh, and uh, people were very protective of him. Uh, even, you know, 1912 in Virginia, for, in Kentucky, uh, was a time when everyone was supposed to really care about race. But you have a lot of testimony of people saying it was none of my business, uh, that was a private matter. Uh, but then when they were uh, uh, repeatedly questioned uh, uh, by uh, increasingly frustrated attorneys, uh, they would talk about uh, how uh, the, there, there were constant rumors that, that he was black, constant discussion uh, in the community. Uh, whenever anyone got a little too drunk and a little too mad at the Spencers, uh, this, these were words that would fly. Uh, and... Uh, and talking to descendants, uh, this is uh, these were uh, this was a reputation that lingered over time, uh, and the the discussions ba- basically uh, suggested that uh, he looked uh, unmistakably different, uh, but uh, uh, his, but the community still uh, accepted him as white, did not. Uh, uh, object when his children married their children. Uh, And once they were all related, uh, it was not in their interest to really uh, uh, cast him out. Uh, So the Wall family, uh, this uh, uh, OSB Wall and uh, his, uh, OSB Wall and Amanda Wall, their children all passed for white. Uh, but their cousins who lived next door did not. Uh, uh, OSB Wall's sister married a man named John Mercer Langston, uh, who was the uh, first African-American elected to public office in the country uh, and actually was the first black congressman from Virginia. Uh, And uh, uh, Langston's children uh, uh, didn't pass for white. Uh, There were... uh, uh, numerous, uh, and uh, uh, other children of OSB Wall's siblings uh, did not either, uh, and really proudly embraced uh, their, their African-American heritage and do so to this day. Uh, the, uh, at the same time, there were uh, a lot of children in their circle, their social circle, uh, who did wind up passing for white. So OSB Wall was... Uh, close friends with uh, a man named Richard Greener, uh, who uh, was uh, an African-American Harvard graduate and lawyer 
uh, and um, uh, and a, a real race man, uh, a real civil rights activist. Uh, but his daughter uh, changed her name to um, Belle da Costa Green and became uh, J.P. Morgan's librarian uh, and was known for her exotic Portuguese extraction. Sure. Uh, uh, a question uh, about uh, why I chose to write this book and whether the um, uh, history that I write about uh, presents itself in any uh, uh, issues in my family history. Uh, so this is a story that I've been thinking about uh, for a really long time. Uh, you know, when, when I started, uh, my mother, who's sitting right here, her hair was jet black. Uh, no. Um, uh, <laughs> um, uh, but, uh, so, uh, you know, initially, uh, on my first day of college, uh, I found my way to a class on pre-1920 African-American literature. It was a small class and students were sitting around a, a seminar table. And there was a professor who was talking about the spirituals, and he was getting more and more and more excited. And then suddenly, he disappeared under the table, and the students all looked across from each other, wondering what was going on. And then he popped back up. He had a 78 record player that he started cranking, and Paul Robeson's voice filled the room, and I was hooked. And the writer who we read that semester, who I responded to the most, uh, was a writer named Charles Chestnut, uh, who uh, was a, uh, a lawyer and a court stenographer. Uh, in, uh, he was raised in Fayetteville, North Carolina, and then moved to Cleveland. And he, uh, he could pass for white, but chose to proudly identify as African American. And a lot of what he wrote uh, walked, uh, uh, really chose to, uh, to examine uh, the color line. And I think wrote about the color line in, in incredibly uh, uh, prescient and important ways. Uh, so this was something that I was really interested in. And then uh, what really set me on this path uh, towards this book uh, was when I was still in college in the summer of 1993, I, uh, I spent the summer volunteering on a voter education project in South Africa. And it was right before the country's first free elections. And I worked with uh, a group of people who were longtime anti-apartheid activists. And one woman I worked with said, everyone here, everyone we work with, uh, has been classified by the government as African, which was the designation for black. Uh, but I'm classified as colored, which was the designation for mixed race. She said, actually, I could have been classified as African. But when the local constable went door to door classifying people under the Race Classifications Act, an apartheid act from the 50s, uh, he knew my father, who had been a police officer, uh, and thought he'd honor their friendship and his service by putting a C by our names instead of an A. And that one word, really that, just that one letter, uh, had a huge effect on her life. You know, it meant she lived in a different kind of house, in a different kind of township, went to a different kind of school, only spoke English and Afrikaans. Uh, and 
it was really important for me uh, to realize that uh, you know, race in South Africa was something that was supposed to be ironclad. Uh, it was a, a line that was guarded with the full power of a modern police state. And at the same time, uh, th- she showed me that it could be the product of personal relationships and community dynamics and individual whims. And I returned to the U.S. wondering if the same thing had happened here. And that's when I first found court cases where uh, judges and juries had to determine whether people were white or black. In terms of my own family history, um, I mean, the uh, closest analogy, uh, you know, as, as far as I know, uh, there's no African-American ancestry in my family tree. Uh, although uh, for uh, uh, at the moment when uh, my uh, great-great-grandparents and great-grandparents were, were moving to the United States, a uh, moment when a lot of uh, Eastern Europeans and Southern Europeans were moving to the United States, uh, this was a time when uh, uh, there, there were uh, additional opportunities for African-Americans to become white. So an African-American journalist at the time said, uh, I've met uh, countless uh, Greeks and Italians who are really from uh, Hopto, Georgia, and Shoe Button, Arkansas. Uh, you know, as far as I know, my, my family is Eastern European Jewish. Uh, but, you know, the, and, and the closest we get is uh, uh, just the, the general process of assimilation into American life. Uh, my... Uh, grandfather was born in Baltimore uh, and grew up in a uh, neighborhood that was uh, uh, racially mixed, black and Jewish. Uh, and uh, he, uh, he said that he learned English from his African-American neighbors. Uh, and in a way, his African-American neighbors really taught him uh, the, the first lessons uh, on what it meant to be American. So in, in terms of blood, uh, this isn't really uh, part of my family story. Uh, in, in terms of acculturation and the story of what it means to be an American, uh, I, I do feel a kinship to the story. For a solid year, really more than a year, uh, uh, all I did uh, was try and research as many families as I possibly could. And there are dozens of these that you can find in court cases and sort of scattered across histories and memoirs and uh, newspaper stories. I found um, between 1880 and 1930, uh, you can find just dozens and dozens and dozens of little stories on the inside pages that involve, um, uh, I guess, the the, um, uh, Baltimore story uh, that comes to mind is... um, a uh, little girl who was uh, assigned to uh, Baltimore's uh, orphanage for colored girls. Uh, and she sued uh, on the ground that she was white. And the judge ordered uh, a team of Johns Hopkins physicians, uh, some of the men who, who really founded the place, uh, to examine her uh, from head to toe. Uh, they checked the, the color of the moons of her fingernails, uh, the color of the whites of her eyes, uh, her hair texture, uh, the curve of her spine. Uh, and they reported back 
that they could find no discernible trace of African ancestry. And you would find these uh, really every couple months for 50 years, you can find stories like this. You know, it's like uh, you, know, you, you need to fill a couple column inches on page four, uh, and you can go with a, uh, uh, you know, a fire, uh, a, a, you know, a boat accident, or uh, one of these race-bending stories. Uh, so I spent a long time uh, just generating uh, uh, these stories and just trying to get a general sense of uh, the experience of crossing the color line. And so I, I first narrowed down, I, I thought I would write a book about 10 families, each chapter about a different family. Uh, and then uh, it, there was just this huge amount of detail I was able to get about each family. Uh, and so then I narrowed it down more to three. And I chose three uh, because they were typical and they were extraordinary. They're typical in that they, they represented just the sheer diversity of this, this phenomenon uh, over time in different places from different uh, uh, social uh, uh, positions. And they also uh, complicated and confounded our conventional understandings of becoming white uh, in important ways. Uh, and then extraordinary because there was just so much uh, incredible detail in the historical record about these families. And I, I thought I could really go beyond the bare genealogical facts and really uh, begin to recapture consciousness. So there's, um, uh, in the late 19th century, people would talk about... Um, uh, there are people who are Portuguese, and there are people who are Carolina Portuguese. Um, interesting. Religion makes a, a few appearances in the book. Uh, uh, the Gibson family, when they moved to Mississippi, uh, it's right around. Uh, they, uh, it, it's part of a great awakening, and uh, the Gibsons are caught up in uh, uh, a uh, new evangelical movement. And uh, there are a couple Gibsons who are uh, pioneer Methodists in Mississippi. So I was able to learn a lot about the family from, uh, I never expected to be uh, reading uh, histories of Methodism in Mississippi. Uh, But there are quite a few of these books, and they're really long. Uh, And uh, there's something about these... uh, uh, new religions, and, and we see this in, in the colonial Carolina backcountry uh, and on the Mississippi frontier, uh, that uh, were, uh, you know, there, there is certainly tolerance of interracial congregations. Uh, there, uh, later, a uh, uh, member of the Gibson family uh, converts to Catholicism, uh, although that, in part, was uh, uh, a really shrewd move to make uh, for an aspiring politician in New Orleans. Uh, But the Catholic Church uh, in New Orleans would uh, marry uh, blacks and whites, uh, even though those marriages couldn't be recorded publicly. Uh, So, uh, and OSB Wall uh, integrated the first congregational church in Washington, and the uh, minister, this was right after the Civil War, and it was uh, Oliver Otis Howard's uh, congregation and uh, 
the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court uh, uh, Chase's congregation. And uh, uh, when OSB Wall tried to become a member, uh, the minister initially objected, and uh, uh, there was a, the congregation basically forced the minister to resign, uh, and, and Wall uh, joined the church. Gibsons, uh, you know, whether they moved into South Carolina like my family or moved uh, west into the Tennessee Hills uh, near where I live, um, uh, they could conceivably be from the same family uh, of uh, early free people of color, uh, although there were uh, plenty of other free people of color who changed their name to Gibson. Uh, because the Gibsons were so established uh, uh, as free families. Uh, so uh, hard to know, uh, but uh, not implausible. So, yeah, so basically from uh, uh, New Jersey uh, south to the Florida panhandle, essentially along the mountains, uh, and then west into Mississippi and Louisiana and Texas, uh, there have always been groups that uh, uh, were known as uh, the little races. Uh, so there are communities where uh, there are blacks and there are whites, and then there might be a third segregated school uh, for people who uh, no one quite knew what they were. Uh, they insisted they weren't black, uh, the whites insisted they weren't white. And their backgrounds, uh, they, they had origin stories that, that talked about uh, lost Spanish explorers from DeSoto's expedition, Portuguese sailors who washed up on shore, uh, Turkish, Phoenician. Uh, uh, there, there were all kinds of explanations for this. And they all had different names. So in... Uh, uh, Tennessee, the largest group is, is called Melungeon. A uh, very similar group in Virginia was, was called the Ramps because they ate the wild leeks ramps uh, that grew in the area. Uh, in New Jersey, there's the, the Jackson Whites or the Ramapo Mountain uh, uh, Indians. Uh, in Maryland, uh, the name of this kind of family uh, were, were the Weasorts. And the... Uh, explanation for why they were called the Weasorts was uh, uh, supposedly traced to a matriarch of one of these clans uh, who would al always talk about Weasorts as opposed to African Americans who were themsorts. <laughs> Not, that's a little different. Yeah, that is still a little different. So in, um, in the Florida Panhandle, um, uh, I interviewed members of a community that was, uh, uh, that, that, uh, was known as the, the Dominickers, uh, and they were named for, uh, and they didn't like the name. This, this was what the whites in the community called them. It was a name uh, for a chicken with black and white feathers. Uh, and... Uh, uh, all over the South, uh, these, uh, these families exist uh, that sort of both confounded the conventional color line uh, but also provided occasions for, for restating why, why it was important. Uh, and 
some of these families also uh, uh, moved to Baltimore, moved to Catonsville. Uh, there, there is a, a demographer uh, for the U.S. Department of Agriculture named Calvin Beal, uh, who recently died, uh, but but he did uh, some really fascinating pioneering work uh, with these communities. Actually, there were a lot of movies uh, dealing with the color line uh, that uh, uh, Hollywood has been uh, putting out since uh, the silent era. Uh, so there are, I, I don't know, there are a couple versions of The House Behind the Cedars by Charles Chestnut uh, that were made during the silent era. Uh, but, you know, all the way through to um, uh, The Human Stain, uh, which came out pretty recently. Uh, but, you know, there's a classic era of imitation of life and, and pinky, uh, lost horizons. Uh, you, you could have uh, uh, a real uh, big Netflix queue uh, of, of movies that were about passing. And, uh, and they generally followed... Uh, a very conventional structure uh, of uh, you know people who were changing their names and fearing betrayal and and it really it was passing as a tragic masquerade and it, it, to a certain degree it's a narrative that uh, has convinced historians that this isn't a story that can possibly be recovered. You know, it's something that is so secretive uh, and so uh, uh, meticulously covered up that uh, it's impossible to write about. Uh, but I think now we live in a time when uh, you know, even the most closely held family secrets are no match for Ancestry.com. <laughs> and so, so I think we're, we're really learning... Uh, that the experience of becoming white is much, much bigger uh, than the Hollywood portrayal of it. Thank you all very much. Thank you.